We are entering into a couple more weeks of just visiting some scriptures that have been impressed upon my mind recently. Uh, and we come now to this one. We come to the book of Second John, which I find to be a really fascinating little letter. It's a letter that is uh, somewhat overlooked, I could say. You know, there's some books of the Bible that seem to get all the attention. Isn't, isn't that kind of funny how that works? You know, we go to Genesis, we go to Romans, we go to Psalms, we go to a lot of those and we visit them very, very often. I think there's good reason for that. There's a reason why we go to Romans and it's so full of Christian doctrine and truth and it's one of the best explanations of what the gospel is. We visit the book of Psalms. We love those songs of David and others who cry out in such anguish and such pain and such agony. And we go to them, I think, because we can see ourselves in them. There's a reason, I think, why we go to some of those very familiar books of the Bible. And yet, it's interesting to me how there are still some, we could say, unvisited books of those same scriptures. For example, can you number in your head or can you even remember how many times you've heard a sermon from the gospel of John probably not I can say that uh, I've heard countless sermons from the gospel of John it's a very familiar gospel and yet in all of my years of going to church which basically my entire life since my dad and my granddad were both pastors my dad still is a pastor I have never heard, or at least I don't remember, so maybe my dad is preaching this and I don't mean to offend him if he watches, <laughs> but I don't remember if he preached on Second John. <laughs> I've never heard a preacher get up and stand up and preach from this little letter, which I find incredibly odd. Especially because as Baptists we would affirm 2 Timothy 3 where Paul is writing to that beloved disciple Timothy. And he says that all scripture is what given by inspiration of God. And as he says there and is profitable. Not just certain parts of scripture. Yes I think even Paul in that little phrase he means even those very tedious parts of Leviticus are profitable for us. And we could say by rights the same thing is very true here. That even this somewhat obscure, somewhat overlooked little letter of Second John is profitable for you and I today. And I would say it's actually I think one of the most profitable little letters we could ever examine. It's only 13 verses. In fact, if you translate this book into the Greek, this letter into the Greek, it's actually the second shortest book in the Bible, only trailing its sequel, which is 3 John. You would think that that brevity would lead to more familiarity, but I don't think that's the case. It's somewhat unstudied, but I would say it contains, this little letter does, some of the most, I would say, relevant and resonant truths that we ought to take to heart. I think, though, what makes Second John so troublesome, if I can use that word, is this mystery of its audience. Look at verse 1 again. As the Apostle John says in the opening verse, The elder unto the elect lady and her children. The question that remains, who is this elect lady? What's this, what's this woman here that John is addressing? What, who is she? Who was she? Was this a person? Was this an actual lady who had risen uh, to such a standing in the early church that it was necessary for this apostle to give her a very direct and pointed address? Or, or was John sort of using some figurative language? 
Some poetic language and a poetic title, we might say, to uh, actually talk to a church. Was this elect lady, so to speak, a sort of euphemism for a whole congregation of believers that were very dear to the Apostle John? Well, I'm here to tell you that there's no really definitive answer. (laughs) I've studied for weeks on trying to determine what this particular title refers to. And there's actually some very compelling arguments on both sides of the coin. Some have argued that in the original Greek, that word lady can be translated as Syria, C-Y-R-I-A, which could also be a proper name. So you could actually translate this in some people's minds to the elect Syria, which would make sense if you read 3 John as he says to the uh, as he says to the disciple Gaius uh, if you look at 3 John just a page over the elder unto the well beloved Gaius whom I love in the truth which of course is to a proper name of a individual there yet by the same token the word children that is used throughout this letter in verses 1 and 4 and 13 It's the same word that's used in the previous letter, 1 John, upwards of uh, 12 times. And each time it's used in 1 John, it's used in a very much a corporate sense. He's addressing a church. He's addressing a a corporate body of disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're in a conundrum. (laughs) There's no definitive answer. John doesn't give us this person's name. He doesn't tell us if it's a church or not. Actually... I think I'll kind of leave that up to you. You do some study. It'll be exciting, I think, for you to come up with an answer. And actually what I would say, it doesn't matter whether he's writing this to a family that he loves, that he's fond of, that he has met along the way and along his travels. Or if he's writing this to a body of believers, a congregation much like us, the exact same application is true. It doesn't change the way you study, the way you apply this particular book. I think that's why I think it's here for us. That's why it's in the Bible at all. It's here because it speaks some very significant truths for us. It's here because it tells us what it is, what it is our responsibility is in this day and age of the church. Our first insight comes from verse 5. I want you to notice what John says. Because he says almost with some bit of casualness, but also with certainty that his is no new commandment. Notice, and now I beseech thee, I beg of thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. You see, by this, I think he is meaning to suggest, and he's meaning to uh, be sure that this, this church or this family realizes that both his previous letter... That is First John. And this current letter that they hold in their hands are not, are not to be received as some sort of new revelation. This isn't some new sort of outpouring of the Holy Spirit or anything. That These aren't newfangled articles of faith that he is introducing to them. And I would even hasten to say that these words were not even his. These weren't John's words necessarily. And I would say even he would say that these aren't necessarily even the apostles' words. As he says, these are words, as he says, from the beginning. These are words which we have been given and handed down to us by the Heavenly Father. He says that in verse 4. As we have received a commandment from the Father. The Father has given them these words. The Father has given them these truths. 
That's what makes them authoritative. John is here standing on the authority of the fact that he's, these words that he is giving and encouraging to this church or this family, he's giving them by the authority of the only true Lord, not his own inspiration. Not even his own imagination, not even his own wit or wisdom. None of those things are what he is standing on. He is saying here definitively, you can trust these words because they are God's. They're God's words, which we have received from the beginning. And likewise, therefore, you children, he is seeming to say, you can center your lives around these truths, not because they come from me, not because I've given to them uh, to you in an eloquent way, but because they are God's. You can see here already he is being very sure. That his stance is on God's words, not man's wit or wisdom or intellect. Which I think is an important point considering what he says next. Notice verse number 7. This is the reason we might say for his writing. The reason why he is so impressed with getting this letter to these individual children of God. He says, for many deceivers are entered into the world. Who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. Here you can see clearly this contrast that, Paul, that excuse me, John is trying to bring to the surface. He has this contrast of God's words, which are from the beginning. They are eternal. They are everlasting. They are true. And here you have the words of the deceivers. They have a beginning. They have a starting point. They have an origination date. They're not eternal. They're very temporal. They're very contemporary to their times. And he's saying you don't trust their words because they're not from the beginning. They are disingenuous. They come from, as he says, these deceivers, which is also translated vagabonds. He doesn't have high view of these guys. These guys who are going around entering into churches, into homes perhaps, deceiving all manner of people with false truth and false doctrine. He calls them misleading vagabonds, or we could say, call them roving agents of corruption. That's what he's calling these deceivers. They're imposters. They're fakes. They're masquerading as though they have wisdom from on high. And really they don't. They are misleading you. They are deceiving you. They are calling you and calling the truth of God into question. Such is the picture that John paints of these who don't abide in the doctrine of Christ. And it's precisely because of that. He calls them these very grievous titles, deceivers, antichrist, because they taught what? Verse 7. They confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Basically, what they were coming around and teaching is that Jesus was not fully God and Christ was not fully man. Which seems like an odd thing to say because that's what these teachers were doing. They were driving a wedge in the natures of the Son of God. Making them distinct. Jesus represents the Son of God's humanity. And Christ represents the Son of God's divinity. How his holiness. 
And they were making them distinct, I think, for a very particular reason. This is something that was circulating throughout the early church. And in fact, you can read many of these letters in the New Testament. And you can find many of the apostles were addressing this issue. An issue which had arisen in the very early days of the church. That Christ and Jesus were two distinct figures. You see, this is, I think, how they endeavored to explain this idea of a God who suffers. You think, you see, this, you you can remember, you can perhaps are familiar with some of those places where it talks about the scandal of the cross. And even if you think about that whole notion of the cross, it should and ought to be heard in your ears as something very scandalous. It was a notion that entered into this first century world as something unheard of. It was atrocious that such apostles and now even the church were centering their worship around a guy who was crucified. And not just a guy who was crucified, a guy who was tried as a blasphemer, as a traitor. And yet the church was saying, that's our Lord. You can understand perhaps the scandal of that day and age. You can understand why in the book of Acts, the powers that be, the powers of Rome and of all of those little uh, regions that that were uh, so uh, up in arms, we could say, by the apostles preaching. They were championing this traitor of the Roman Empire at the time. And so you see, to make sense of this notion of God suffering on the cross... These deceivers divided the nature of Jesus Christ into two distinct natures. Therefore, only making that that human nature the nature that suffered on the cross. Therefore, when Christ was suffering the atrocities and the agonies of Golgotha, it was only an appearance of suffering. It was only a figurative suffering. It's an absurd notion. And indeed, I would say this teaching, this dividing, this idea that Christ wasn't God in the flesh, as is everywhere made known, is something that makes us be able to say you have lost the Christian faith entirely. That's why John has such strong words for them. Those who are teaching such things, those who are teaching the idea that Christ wasn't God in the flesh, they are anti-Christ. They are opposed to everything that scripture reveals. They are opposed to everything that Christ ever said or did. Indeed, it's the inherent belief of everyone who claims the name of Jesus Christ this morning and all throughout the ages that Jesus was God and man at the same time, fully, completely, simultaneously, 100%. 100% God and 100% man. It's the beauty and the mystery and the miracle of what we have just celebrated at Christmas time. The miracle and the mystery of the incarnation. It's something that we hold to. It's something that we cling to. And it's something that we affirm that when he suffered on the cross, he suffered as God in the flesh. Yes, that's indeed what makes it scandalous. But that is indeed what makes it glorious. Because the man hanging on the cross wasn't just a man. It was God. It was the one whose back was infinite enough and strong enough and broad enough to shoulder the weight of all the world's sins. See, when you lose that, it's just a man dying. 
When you lose the idea that Christ was God in the flesh, you have just a teacher tried and crucified. Where is your faith then? You can see John's inspiration here, his urgency. It wasn't just a small thing. It wasn't just a miscalculation. They were losing the faith, as he says here. They were losing God himself, as he says. Those who abide not in this doctrine hath not God. They've they've gone so far away that they have abandoned this truth. Such is why John's writings are so concerned with this particular notion and trying to dispel this particular teaching. He calls him in verse 3, the son of the father. Likewise, the apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2, he calls him in the midst of that sermon right after Pentecost, he calls him Lord and Messiah. That guy you crucified, he's the Lord of all things and he is Messiah, promised of God who would come and do this very thing that is being happening in your midst. Likewise, the writers of the Hebrews calls this very one the author and the finisher of our faith. Everywhere you look in the New Testament, they are making it so you cannot be of doubt. This Christ was God. He's God in the flesh. And in fact, I think that's why we won't read all the verses, but a very intriguing study is to compare the first opening verses of 1 John chapter 1 and the opening verses of his gospel. They're almost exactly the same. And I think it's because he was very concerned. Concerned with the church, as he says, concerned with these these beloved children of his. Children in the faith, concerned how they might be swayed into veering into other paths of truth. You see here, as John here says in 2 John, veering even slightly from this doctrine results in ruin. You have not God. It's an error that's akin to the Antichrist. This is the significance and the gravity of those who would say, listen to my new doctrine. These deceivers were coming in and saying that. To such, John says, bid them a goodbye without wishing them well. Verse 10 of 2 John, if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, if they are preaching something opposite of the incarnation of God in Christ Jesus, receive them not in your house, neither bid them God's speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is a partaker of his evil deeds. <laughs> it's kind of harsh language. Don't receive them, don't entertain them. I think this harshness is sort of the whole point. Because some have questioned this idea that John, the John of the Gospels, the John of the Gospels who's called the Apostle whom Jesus loved, the John of the Gospels who likewise everywhere sort of enforces this notion of love, especially if you read his first letter, They've questioned the idea that he would give this sort of counsel. It sounds a little unloving. It sounds something that doesn't fit the tone of the rest of his writing. And yet I would say, this is actually the most loving thing that you can do for your neighbor. Think about it. What does your neighbor need most? Your neighbor needs your obedience. 
The most loving thing that you and I can do for those who are around us, those that we see on a daily basis, is to resist evil and walk in the truth. That's what John is saying here. You're resisting those false notions of who God is, and you're pushing back that dark, dark doctrine, and you're walking in truth, as he says in verse 5. Now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning. That we love one another. This is our calling as those who are in the church. And what is this love? And this is it. That we walk after his commandments. Being a Christian. Being a believer. Being a child of God. Means we have been summoned onto this type of life. A life of walking in truth and love. It sounds to me very much like the first psalm. Actually, go over there. Psalm 1. I could not help but think of this particular command in light of what the psalmist says in this very familiar opening psalm. What does he say? He says in verse 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. You can get the sense that here the psalmist is sort of almost echoing. Or we could say John is echoing what the psalmist is saying here. Abide in the teachings of the Lord. Don't be swayed. Don't, don't veer off into something else. And he that does so, you that abide in the doctrine of the Lord shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth fruit in, forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. They hath not to God. This contrast of this blessed man with this ungodly man is very reminiscent of what we have in Second John. Such that those who are deceived by these very cunning teachings of these deceivers are sort of like this chaff which the wind driveth away. They've opened the door. They've opened the door to the truth, we might say, and invited these new commands, these new words to sort of sit and stay a while. They've allowed these deceivers to have room, allowed them to have space, allowed them to have a voice. And before you know it, much like this man in Psalm 1, they're not just taking counsel from these ungodly voices. They're now sitting in the seats of the scornful. And in John's mind, he says, doing so, you are participating in their way. Doing so makes you a partaker, as he says, verse 11, of their evil deeds. You see, this is why John felt the urgency, the necessity of writing these particular words. These words are the whole occasion for this entire letter. As you see, this teaching has emerged, and perhaps even there was a slight acceptance of it too. It was driving his pen to outdo those deceivers. He was concerned for these children. 
Notice verse 4 again. He says, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth. You see that phrase, of thy children, is very suggestive and enlightening because it actually indicates that some were walking in truth whilst others weren't. It suggests that there was, a, there was a group of those who, yes, were walking in truth and in love according to this command from the Father, and yet there were others who were not. And to that end, he exhorts these children of God, along with everyone who knows the truth, to cling ever tighter to it, to grip on to this word of the Father and walk after this commandment which they heard from the beginning and this doctrine of Christ. Such is why he says in verse 8, look to yourselves. Which basically means watch, be on guard, be vigilant. He's encouraging these children whom he loved To be vigilant in their faith and in their devotion and in their trust of God and Christ himself. What does all this have to do with us, you might wonder? I did too, after studying this for a while. Reading this command and reading all of these words, these encouragements, these truths. Well, I think it would be safe to say that there's no shortage of antichrists in our own day. There's no shortage of those who will look on this truth of God and pervert it. Twisted into something of their own making. And in fact, look around, look at the news, watch the headline news, or don't. Read your newspaper. Open your phone now. And you will be overwhelmed in short manner of all the quote-unquote truths And confessions and philosophies by which people revolve their whole entire lives. Truths and confessions and philosophies, I might add, that run counter, directly counter to this word of the Father. Truths, I might say, that creep into our families, creep into our homes, creep into our churches. And deceive God's people, his very children, into thinking that it is agreeable and it is acceptable to embrace convictions which are opposite of God's word which we had from the beginning. It's okay, they say, to affirm other genders. It's okay, they say, to be accepting of same-sex relationships. It's okay to question the design of God in creation. It's okay to doubt the sufficiency of God's word. And on and on the rhetoric runs. And you can see the acceptance of some of these things in pockets of Christianity. Because they were deceived into thinking that such things were agreeable with God's truth. To such, John would say the same things. Look to yourselves. Look at what we've been given from the very beginning. It's the truth of God and it has not changed. It has not been altered. And yet I think sometimes we are, and I count myself in this, we're somewhat desensitized to some of these Philosophies that are so put before us, they're in your face. And we don't often realize how atrocious they are, how affronting they are to God Himself. 
You see it in commercials. They just sneak in little things. Sneak in little tidbits of false truth. And sooner or later you're questioning whether it is really okay. Or whether it's really denied. You think, I think sometimes our denials of God, our falling away from God is just the, the culmination of a lot of small compromises over a long period of time. And the result, God's word is left in the gutter. I think such is our day and age, and I don't mean to paint a doom and gloom picture of the church and the faith and all those sorts of things, but I think it is safe to say that it's not popular to be a Christian. I would say it's never really been. But now more than ever, I would say, like John says, look to yourselves. Cling to this word of the Father, which you have had from the beginning. Because there are those who are using it, using it to their own ends. The tragedy of tragedies is that there are those in the church who are being deceived. They're being swept up in this wreckage and this debris of false doctrine and ruinous ideas. And children of God now are falling away. I don't have to perhaps list or catalog all of those that I know. Perhaps you know them too. Friends you grew up with. Friends you went to vacation Bible school with. Friends you would say used to be close to the Lord who have fallen away. John's words are the same. Church, be vigilant. Look to yourselves. Be on guard. There are antichrists that are all around looking to deceive you. To such, give them no space, as John says. Give them no quarter. Offer them no room in your heart and mind and soul. And instead... Abide in the doctrine of Christ. As he says in verse number 9. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ. He hath both the Father and the Son. What's needed in 2022. For our church. For churches all across America. What's needed. What would get us revived. What would get us on fire for God again. We can think about these things. We can think about what do we really need. We need to abide in the doctrine of Christ. That's what we need. We don't need some newfangled word from on high. We don't need some new inspiration or new revelation from the Father. We need these words of God preached with passion and vigor. This is what we need. We need to look to ourselves. And then as the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. This sort of dual looking here is all that we are required to do and is all that we are inspired to do and all that this church needs. I am greatly moved, especially lately, of this truth about God's word. This is what our country needs. You know what's going to bring the church along with this entire nation to its knees? It's not some new legislation. We don't need this particular man in office. We need a church of believers who believe that this word is true. 
And they cling to it and they walk in it. They don't just play church. They don't just come and sit in these pews because they've always done it. And their grandma brought them way a long time ago. No, we come to church because this is the place where God's word is open. The very revelation of his son is here in front of us. You can open your phone and you can see it. You can open the pages of the Bible, perhaps if you have a printed one in front of you. And you can read those same words. It's the revelation of the son of God. God in the flesh and what he did for you and I and everyone here and everyone who has ever lived. This is the truth that we affirm and we sing. The reason why we can smile and have joy and laugh in this place is because of this book in front of us. And the reason why we can weep with hope and we can weep and be sad with expectation when things hit us is because of this book. This doctrine of Christ abides for every single one of us here. That abides for this whole entire world until God's purposes are done with it. What we need, what we have needed from the very beginning, is not a fresh outpouring or anything like you hear in a lot of these uh, uh, other types of uh, movements. We need a fresh, renewed appreciation. And I would say a fresh and renewed look. What this word says, you know, I, I don't mean to self-reference. Back when I first came to this church in June of 2019, coming on three years now, my very first sermon is one that I haven't gotten away from, and not because I preached it so good. I don't, I don't mean to say that. But I preached a sermon, uh, and I stole the title from Martin Luther. And the title is, All Scripture is Pure Christ. That, my friends, I think is what will change the world. That message. That from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, there was one particular story that's being told. There's one particular person that is being revealed. And it's not a magnanimous teacher. That's even too small. It's God in the flesh. That's what's being revealed. That's what's being displayed on every single page, on every single word. We have before us the revelation of what God did as he saw this world spinning into oblivion. And it still is. And what does he choose to do? Enter into that oblivion and redeem it. And he says, I will make all things new. And you have that story being told. Through all of the winding discourses about Abraham and Jacob and all of the histories of David and the kings of Israel. As we've been going through in the books of Kings. There's been calamity after calamity. Prophet after prophet came to God's people and told them return, repent, look at your, what your father is doing. Look at what your father has promised. <laughs> And it even took God coming in the flesh. And even then people didn't notice. As he says, his own family turned away from him, Christ says. I do not expect that 
we would have any more success than what our Christ did. But I would say that this is what our world needs. Be pointed to him. Not to our abilities, not to our exquisite ways that we are able to accomplish things, not the way that we are so successful. Look at how much money we've been given here and there. We need to point people to the doctrine of Christ. The one who saved them, the one who promised from the beginning that he would redeem them by becoming like them. This is what we need. To that end, church, like John says, be vigilant. Look to yourselves and look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes in a word of prayer.